what do you look for as you build out your team? It's grit and passion. One of the things we say at Content Stack is quit your job, discover your calling. And it's really about, you know, do you really want to be a part of, and we use this language and some people may not love it, but it's tribe. Do you want to be a part of a tribe that's going to change the way that people build things? And you can sense it a lot of the time. I mean, there's a skill set that comes with every role, but then there's also a, like a passion, a drive, an energy, wanting to challenge the status quo to be better, to do more, and to do it in a way that's collaborative and not in a, in a silo. How are we doing out there, folks? This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn. I play for Team Breakline, and we have the dynamic trio assembled once again. What is up, everybody? It is Sophia, and I play for Team Breakline. Sophie and Kenny, this is Bethany Coates coming in hot, joining the two of you in the Breakline arena. Now, you know I'm excited. I'm excited every time our listeners get a chance to soak up some of this wisdom. Today is no exception. We have Neha Sampat in the arena. Of the many titles that she has held over the course of her career, because I do not want to do her a disservice, the one that we spend some time focusing on today is CEO and co-founder of Content Stack. Sophia, would you mind teeing us up for this conversation? Yes, she is an entrepreneur in her heart and soul. And this goes all the way back to her childhood. When she was 12 years old, she started a New Kids on the Block fan club. It, mm -hmm. She raised some money, she was investing it. Like she, from the get-go, has been involved in this game. And I think that that spirit in her really is, you guys are gonna love it. She's, she's so fun. I agree, Soap, and I think she made $1,200 or something yeah. in her new Get on the Block fan club in now. 1990s dollars. <laughs> so As a I 12 year old. As a 12 year old. And then she invested it in her next business, which was a printing business. You know, when so I had, when I was 12, I had $4 from a lemonade stand. Girl, I was wearing acid-washed jeans. I mean, yeah, it was you were. like, I just, you know, I was not thinking about building a business. I just, I loved her moxie. And, you know, and she, she actually built upon this childhood as a serial entrepreneur, and she continued starting companies. Her first sort of real company, in quotes, was as a fresh college graduate. She started a PR firm and was advising lots of different CEOs. She then went on and started multiple companies with her husband, and then even went further than that and big, big aspirations for content stack. She went out to raise money, venture capital funding, sort of received a, hey, why don't we talk in a year? In that year, she absolutely blew the doors off with content stack. She and her team just succeeded in a massive way. And then congrats to Neha and team for raising $58 million earlier Ooh. this year in 2021. Yes, yeah, so Girlfriend is is on to big things and it was just really wonderful to hear her story. And, and as I said, I, I just loved her moxie, you know, the, the idea that anything is possible if you're willing to just put your shoulder to the grindstone. Neha is absolutely crushing it. And what I loved about this conversation is as a serial entrepreneur, there were so many insights and lessons learned that she shared. One of them was just the ability to be rejection proof. Mm -hmm. And I love the little rift that y'all had in this conversation where it's like, I don't even hear no anymore. It's like, I hear maybe not now, but I'm gonna come back around. So just the ability to be rejection proof, I thought was so cool. And then the other leadership lesson that she shared was that life is short. It's too short to be boring. And so she has just weaved in so many really cool experiences, not only in her professional life, but also in her personal life. She is a sommelier. That means she is quite the connoisseur of wine. And that's not an easy certification to get, but I think the fact that she has found this balance to be excellent professionally, but then also to excel in all other pillars and aspects of life as a wife, as a mother, mm -hmm. as a friend. It was just phenomenal and fascinating to see. And finally, I also want to give her podcast a shout out because she's got a podcast out there called Dream Makers with Neha. And so please check that out on your streaming platforms because she is also continuing to drop the wisdom out there as well. Yes. So I don't know about you ladies, 
But on that note, maybe we should dive in and give these listeners what they came here for. See you over there. Neha, welcome. We're so delighted to have you here um, together with our Breakline community. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And I wanted to thank Carol Patel, also one of our champions at Confluent, very good friends with Neha, and she made this conversation possible. So thank you, Carol, for connecting us. So Neha, we have so much to unpack here, and it's going to be so fun to share a little bit of your journey with the Breakline community. I wanted to start in in your early adulthood. You started your own PR agency at the tender age of 22. And I'd love for you to talk to us about what gave you the confidence to take that leap of faith. How did it turn out? What did you learn from that early entrepreneurial experience? Yeah. I mean, have you heard the saying youth is wasted on young? I mean, yes. (laughs) I tell that to my daughters all the time. (laughs) So I, I actually think like there's a similar thing with confidence that happens really early in your career or when you're just starting to climb the, the workforce ladder, so to speak. And I, at that age was so spirited and so confident that I actually believed that I was helping Silicon Valley CEOs by coaching them and telling them what they should and shouldn't say at press conferences. And I did it with so much conviction that they believed me and that I was actually probably really good at it. And they kept hiring me back. And so I must've been at least partially good at it. And it's interesting because I, like when you're that young and you believe that you can be anything, there's really like nothing in your way. Right. And then as time goes on, you like start to run to run through the obstacles that you run through. And there's, you almost start to see obstacles before you see opportunity. And Mm -hmm. so I've had to work really hard at flipping that and, and looking at for opportunity first and obstacles, kind of figuring out how I'm going to break through them. And it's just, it's, it's weird. I kind of wish that I could channel that original confidence and conviction, but the reality Mm -hmm. is it's just different now, you know, and that experience was also my first real kind of out of college startup. And I had a lot of little side hustles prior to that, but this was the one that I was banking on for my, for my cost of living. And for, I actually was living in the apartment and the downstairs was the PR agency and people would come in and out of there, my coworkers, you know, at six in the morning and work till midnight and it was nuts. And what happened, I was on cloud nine, everything was great. We were growing and September 11th happened. And after that, PR agencies were like one of the first things to go in terms of cutting costs. And it was like just learning how vulnerable a company is in that mm-hmm. form of infancy and Literally, I was without clients, without an income, and really without a home, like pretty much overnight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so when that happens, you just, you learn how to get past it and you learn what those obstacles do and you learn the resilience that comes with that part of the journey. And so that's, I mean, I think it gave me humility very early in my career. And that's been something that I've just carried with me since. Mm -hmm. And you... You started that particular company at 22, but you actually had an entrepreneurial spirit from a really young age. You watched your parents build small businesses. And so I'd love for you to talk about that influence as a child, the influence that your family had on you and your upbringing, and some of those very, very early businesses that that you tried your hand at. Yes, for sure. So I, I was really fortunate to be surrounded by a strong family and support system. And, you know, my parents immigrated from India in the late sixties and like many others who took that, that chance or that leap of faith, they did it with very little and had to build from the ground up. And so I saw, I watched that happen. I saw how hard they worked. There was real struggle. There was financial hardship, but you know, a lot of the time I think they did a lot of that for me and for my brothers. And, and so there's almost like a sense of responsibility that comes with like that, the hustle that I saw and grew up with, I have to carry that forward. So I, in some ways I could, I could say it's kind of in my blood, but Mm -hmm. I saw them constantly trying things and new things and things outside of their comfort zone. And so I grew up thinking that that was normal. And I think that relatability and the access to those experiences is something that really kind of drove me to try a lot of things. And 
when other kids would be playing house, <laughs> I would be playing factory or office. And like, I had all these little side fun little games. And eventually I started to turn them into real side hustles. You know, when, it, when I was a kid, it was like the neighborhood babysitters club or Olympics for my, for the kids in my neighborhood. I started a new kids on the black fan club. <laughs> and <laughs> I actually, I actually made like I don't know, like 1100 bucks doing that. And then I put that money into my next venture. And so I learned also to like reinvest. So it was like bootstrapping and reinvesting. And I learned that at a really early stage of my life. And I knew that I could make money and I was probably like 12 years old. So doing that is $1,100 at 12 years old. And you reinvested in the eighties, in the eighties, if you factor in inflation, that's like a whole thing. What? Oh my gosh. That's amazing. And you had one business. Wasn't it a printing business? Didn't you, weren't you printing? So yeah. So my parents actually ran a print shop out of Los Angeles and I, um, because it was a family business, so we were all involved Mm -hmm. in it. I would go to, I would go to the print shop on the weekends. I learned how to use my Apple computer to do typesetting when I was just a kid. And so we were all involved in it, but that also meant that I knew how to create materials and, and put flyers up. And so I would go over there and use the scraps that weren't being used. And I turned them into flyers and put them all over my community. And that's how I got customers. Uh (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was, so I think a lot of it is just when you have that, that hard work kind of ingrained in you and, and the hustle that comes with that. And then, you know, the work ethic follows and with Mm -hmm. the work ethic comes the opportunity to just keep trying things and, even when it doesn't work and even when it fails, not letting it get you down, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you can't fall off the floor. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so you just get back up and you just keep trying things. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And, and then kind of as life continued, you know, I, um, wanted to go to a college that was not community college. I wanted to go to a university. My family couldn't afford it. So, I found ways to make it happen. And I, I worked jobs through college. I was working practically full-time through most of university and I got scholarships and I got loans and I, you know, it just made it happen. And the, again, with that comes, you graduate and you have all this debt and you, you have to look at how you're going to get through it. And so there's always a plan. And there's always this like idea that you have to manifest something better for yourself. And so mm. that's what I've always been focused on. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. We talk about manifesting a break line all the damn time. So that hits home. And I'm curious when you, when you, you had this like rush of confidence that was backed up by a great client list and feedback from your, your clients and CEOs that you were advising as a 22 year old, and then the business failed after nine 11, um, but you've just talked about these lessons in resilience and grit and work ethic and ingenuity. Do you think that 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 sort of training and exposure that you got as a young child watching your parents, did that inform your reaction to losing that first firm? Yes, I, it did because I, I knew it was just the beginning and, Mm -hmm. you know, I I didn't feel like I, I, I felt like, well, at least I tried and I had that mindset. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was also pursuing my MBA. That's where I met Carol. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to then just take more classes, fast forward through my MBA, a little bit more accelerated. And I took on a few clients on the side because I knew how to do that. And I just Mm -hmm. didn't have the overhead of having a company and employees and all, all the other stuff that comes with it. And that helped me pay my bills and get through the, the six or nine months before I figured out my next move and, Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's just sort of something in knowing that you can pick yourself back up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such an important lesson, you know, understanding that you're a rubber ball and you'll bounce back up. So you pivoted after business school and you pivoted into product at Sun Microsystems, and then you ended up at VMware and you had an experience where you really felt like like a fish out of water um, to some degree at VMware, you were sort of noticing an archetype of, you know, professional there and, and seeing a gap between yourself and whatever that dominant profile was. Will you talk to us about, about that experience? You know, how, how did you, how did you experience that environment? What did it feel like? How did you navigate your way through it? For sure. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So Sun was the big, the first large company I worked for. And there's such a unique culture at Sun that you felt like as someone very young in my 20s, I felt like I had a voice and mm-hmm. um, there was a, a sense of belonging. And it's really weird, but it's something that still exists today. The company's not mm-hmm. there, but the the community is very much there. And mm-hmm. so that's to me, super interesting. It's something I've always modeled as an entrepreneur when I'm building my own companies and teams and culture. And not to say that VMware didn't have that. It was just such a different culture. It was Hmm. a culture of a lot of people that were at that time. And this is, you know, before their IPO and there was like a lot of growth happening at that company. It was kind of attracting people that were similar. And a lot of that was hiring from Ivy League colleges or from big strategic consulting firms. And there was a pedigree that came with that and a language and a vernacular that I just like was not, it wasn't me. It wasn't where I came from. I grew up in, in like a suburb of LA, you know, with like 89% Hispanic students in my, in my high school. Like that's the world I grew up in. Mm -hmm. I felt like a fish out of water at the university of Denver, which was predominantly white. And then I came to Silicon Valley and it was kind of like nerds are cool here. And I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> this is where I belong. <laughs> I belong with all the cool nerds. And, um, and it's at VMware, I just, I like, I went through that whole thing again, where I just mm-hmm. like, I couldn't, I couldn't speak the same language. And I did fine there. I mean, I, I had a successful run, but I also, it just helped me understand like what the difference is in terms of, you know, what kind of a company culture I would want to build and how important diversity of of backgrounds and experiences and thought are. And I think VMware's evolved a lot since I left at that time, but it was just something that I went through in the early days. Mm-hmm. It really does. I mean, I, I think it really does cause you to reflect on where you want to be and what environment really enables you to thrive. Sometimes it's that relief, you know, seeing seeing the like the distance between you and what you bring to the table and what you see around you that sort of clarifies what the right path forward can be, you know? For sure. And I, and I think that's important for people to know what they're, what they're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, it could have been a great company and place of belonging for someone and that, and that's great. And like, you know, and you might look for something else somewhere else. And what I've noticed in the last probably a year, maybe two years is in interviews, when I'm hiring for my own company, mm-hmm. there's so many more questions about culture and what's it like yeah. and what's the balance like. And that didn't really, that wasn't really a thing early in my career as much. Yeah. And it's become such an important part of making a decision about your career, mm-hmm. which I think is great. That's fabulous. Yes. So during this time at VMware, you continued along an entrepreneurial track as well. You were sort of parallel processing these two different professional experiences and you and your husband co-founded another company called Raw Engineering. So you had kind of like your day job and your night job still at this point. Yes. So I'll tell you like kind of the personal story about this. So I, I was about to turn 30 and I'm working at Sun and my husband's working at another software company And we both had this entrepreneurial thing. It was always in us. We always had side hustles, but we, we had the conversation. If we don't do this now, we're never going to do it. And then we'll be 50 years old, looking back saying we built something. And, and so we made the decision that we were going to do this. And we decided one of us would need a paycheck because we did have responsibilities and families to support and mortgages and all that good stuff. So we both looked for jobs. I found a job at VMware that I was super excited about. So I took it. And he quit his job and started to build the company. And I was helping nights and weekends and (laughs) whenever I could squeeze it in. And I was helping to support um, our bills until we could get the company on its feet. And you all built that company together for like 11 years. We just had our 14 year anniversary of the companies from the the beginning of, of raw engineering. So it, that just happened last week. So yeah, it's been 14 year, a 14 year journey since we started. I'm thinking about that motivation that you described. So last week I interviewed Satyan Sangani, the CEO of Alation, and he had the most hilarious line. He said that his wife said to him, 
when he was at Oracle, where he built his career over 10 years, she's like, I'm not going to be married to a bitter old man, you know, who didn't start the company he wanted to start. It's that the, the fear of not going after the big dream, you know, letting the big dream pass you by. That's such a powerful force for the entrepreneurs who come and, and speak to the breakline community. You know what it is? And then it never really ends because yeah. where, wherever you get to, there's always a next step. <laughs> and so, and you, you kind of have to, at some point you'll have to put a stake in the ground and say, I, this is enough. I went far, as far as I wanted to, and I want to enjoy my life and have time for other things. But yeah. it's, it is true. I mean, it's, it's like that fear of regret. And if you've got that drive, it also becomes, it almost becomes like a responsibility. Like I have to do this. I have to mm -hmm. carry through with, with this dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so from raw engineering, you spun out a couple of different companies, right? You spun out built.io and your current company, Content Stack. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So the way that it started, so our passion was actually always on the product side, both my mm -hmm. husband and me. And he's uh, he's got the technical brain. I had more of the business finance ops side of things. And we used to have these when we were both working at enterprise companies, these arguments about why, why does the technical people always want to do this and make it so hard on us on the business side and the business side, why are the business side so impractical, you know, and it, it was this like constant tug of war and it was like, it was intellectual debate. It wasn't fighting, but I think what, what stood out to me is there's gotta be a better way to harmonize the two sides of the business. Cause this happens at every company. And so mm -hmm. part of building raw engineering was to help figure out what that harmony looked like and how do you get empower equally empower both technical and business people inside an organization. And so we started off, you know, and the timing was like right when cloud computing was new and people were starting to bring mobile apps to, to work or their mobile phones to work and apps became a thing. And SaaS, which is SaaS, you know, software as a service was also kind of just starting. It was very nascent. And so when you have all of those things kind of happening together and my husband with an integration background at that time, integration was not on the cloud and it was mm -hmm. starting to move to the cloud. It was just like this culmination of a lot of digital initiatives that were new that no one knew how to do anything with. And so we started off as consultants, helping organizations figure out how to adopt cloud, how to figure out mobile, how to connect things that weren't connected. And in doing that, we, we cited several patterns and two of the patterns that stood out the most is there's a lot of disconnected new tools and software that are being used and we need to figure out how to connect them. And that's the integration part of, of our world. And the other was now that there's mobile and other ways digital content's being consumed, none of the content management systems that work. And we tried to implement Adobe and Sitecore and Tridian and WordPress and Drupal and everything that was out in the market and all the incumbents, we realized that we needed to create something better. And so content stack came out of that need, built.io came out of a need for integration. And we built both of them for our services customers and mm -hmm. seeded them with those customers and soon found that we were sitting on these two like category, industry categories. <laughs> and we were like early, early leaders or pioneers in those categories, but hadn't really invested in the go-to-market until we did the spin out. So it was almost a 10 year journey before we spun out those two companies in 2018 and, and then started to focus on, on each of those companies separately. Um, Neha, you, you described this as we found ourselves sitting on these category leaders, which is like in, in describing it that way, you don't give yourself enough credit for the brilliance and the work and the productivity and the, the feedback that I'm sure you were getting from your customers and the course corrections that happen. It's so hard to build a company and you and your husband have now built three and I can't remember who said this to us, but, but another entrepreneur said, if you think this job is glamorous, <laughs> it's like, that's why you want to get into it. You know, think again. I think it was Jay Kreps, the CEO of Confluent, actually, Carol. And he was just talking about how it's really about rolling up your sleeves and, and having no ego and being totally okay with the fact that there's just a whole bunch of ups and downs as you're building a company. And Neha, you've said growing a company is sometimes like raising a child. <laughs> and so can you talk to us about some of those sticky moments, the, the friction, the obstacles, the, 
you know, the, the tougher things that, that you and your team have had to navigate through, because it wasn't that you found yourself sitting on these category defining <laughs> companies. Yeah. You really pushed your way, you know, you built your way into that, into that place. You know, it, it starts with passion for sure. Uh, you couldn't do this if, if, if you didn't have the passion. And one of the things I often say, if it was easy, everybody would do it. It's definitely mm -hmm. not easy. And I remind my team of that like almost on a daily basis, <laughs> it's almost become a joke inside the company, but it's true. And it, it like, I, I do kind of equate that to parenting in some ways, because you've got, you have the love, like that's just it, whether you, you know, you, you, it's just inherent. And in the beginning, you have like a lot of busy days and exciting days. And the first time something happens and, you know, you're celebrating all of those, but um, and then of course there's sleepless nights and everything that comes with that, but eventually your creation starts to take on a life of its own and you don't mm -hmm. have as much control over it. And like, it develops its own opinions and, you know, start, and that, so it's almost like the, where I am right now is with content stack is it's like in, in its adolescent phase. And there's a lot of fighting back and talking back and opinions from all different directions. And that's normal because we're a scaling company and there's sort of the, the old guard of people that have been there a really long time and people that we've brought in that have seen the movie before going from where we are now to the next stage of scale mm -hmm. and there's going to be friction and you that it, it's it's healthy even though it doesn't always feel like it and mm -hmm. it does get sticky and so there's a few principles that like I've kind of banked on in a lot of it comes back to the people and culture and how you orchestrate all of that working together but one, one thing that we always say at content stack is that everyone has a seat at the table. And the reality is it's not like everyone gets to come to every board meeting. Right. But mm -hmm. it is that you have a, an ability for people to express their, their voice and whether that voice in the organization turns into a decision or not is, is different than being able to at least bring your voice to the table and, and feel like it matters. And sometimes I question if that can be done at scale, but I saw it at sun. Right. And mm -hmm. that was, that was a 30,000 person company at the time. So it's certainly part of it. And then it's, a, it's also looking for, and this kind of goes back to my experience at VMware, it's looking for culture ad, not culture fit. Mm -hmm. And the importance of that is really having a diverse set of players at the table and having the people that have been around for a long time. And also the people that are new and bringing new perspectives is so important because in the end, you're looking for balance in order to get to the next stage. And it could be like a heated fight match, but the point is you, at the end of it, you come up with a conclusion. And even if you disagree, you commit and move forward. And that's the culture we've tried to build, right? So that whole concept of disagree and commit, um, mm -hmm. which comes up a lot at this stage of the journey. And then one thing that I'm really passionate about is, is values. And this goes back to the idea of manifesting. You have to put it in writing. And yeah. people should know what the values are and you have to align around them. And it, it starts with what are you trying to accomplish? What's the vision? And then what's the mission? And then what are the values that support that? And how do you behave in order to get there? And having that ends up being a tool for kind of reminding people when things get sticky. And if you think about families, it's also like some families bank on religion. Like, you know, is that, is that the right way to do things? Or they just have rules in their family in the same way values are rules for a tribe that is a company that of people that work together. And so I think that's really important having enlisting the leadership team, making sure that they're establishing and following the values and setting that example and modeling that behavior then kind of trickles down to the rest of the organization. It becomes a thing that we all live with. Mm -hmm. There's, um, there's a content stack value that I love and it says we are dreamers, dream makers, hustlers, and honey badgers. Can you talk to us a little bit about the kind of thinking and feeling behind that value? Yep. So dreamers is, is really about what you said earlier, which is leading in category innovation, even before it becomes a category. And that's that a lot of that comes from the innovative nature of the people in the organization led by really led by my husband, Nishant, who is the CTO, right? And that's, that's his organization. They dream big and they execute on those dreams. Dream makers is is how do you turn that into something that companies, brands, employees can then take their ideas and turn them into reality. And that's really mm -hmm. about dream making in general. And dream makers is a brand that I use even for my own podcast. It's about, it's just about bringing dreams to life and figuring out innovative ways to do that. 
hustlers and honey badgers is really just about the team and how we work. And we, you know, we've always, we started off bootstrapped for a really long time. So there was a lot of hustling. There was a lot of rolling up your sleeves, coming up with scrappy and interesting ideas. And honey badgers is what we call our sales team who won't give up and, and want to win, but they put some honey into the honey badger. And I think that's important because we do care <laughs> a lot about, you know, our customers and our prospects. And we, we appear as partners and consultants more than we do as sellers. I love that so much. And I love the emphasis on, on values and, and we emphasize that in, in our culture as well at Breakline. And I think so, when I think back on some of the toughest moments for me as a leader at Breakline, it's been when there, when a value and our behavior has been in conflict. Has there been, have you had an experience like that where it's just like the company is, or a person in the company is, is behaving in a way that's definitely in conflict with our stated values. And how do you, like, how do you handle that as a CEO? It's so hard, but yes, I mean, it, it happens. If anyone tells you that never happens, they're lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people are people, people are sometimes hard and everyone's going through something different outside of what they're dealing with at work. And so a lot of it is about empathy and understanding. And it's also about accountability Mm-hmm. And the accountability piece is really, if you see someone that's, that's, um, not adhering to values or purposefully breaking something that we believe in, they have to be called out on it mm-hmm. and we have to have the opportunity to correct. And mm-hmm. we do that. And, and that's, I hold my executive team responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we say is we, like a lot of what we do and how we do it can be flexible as long as it's anchored to our values. That's the thing that stays consistent over time. I I think the one that comes up the most, so you read the, you read the fun one. There's also, we do the right thing, even when no one's watching. And I think that's just, I mean, that's just pure integrity and Mm. it comes up a lot. And we ask ourselves that question, you know, what would you do if, if I wasn't here or if I wasn't watching or if the customer wasn't watching or if the partner wasn't watching? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. something that we live. I see it every day. Like we've, we've had to take, we actually have a competitor who we found a security breach in. And instead of exploiting that, I went to an engineering manager mm-hmm. there that I happened to know. And I told him about it mm. so that he could resolve it because the right thing to do is for the greater good of the customer community, the prospect community for our partners and for this category and not specifically about about what's good for us. Neha, you badass, doing the right thing and creating more good karma in the world. I love it. Um, well, it's so funny because my teammate, Kenny Vaughn, was leading a, um, an icebreaker the other day. And a question that came up in the icebreaker was, if you could commit a crime and get away with it, <laughs> what crime would you commit? And I had the hardest time thinking of something because I really care so much about doing the right thing. Like, I don't think, I don't spend any time thinking about how would I get away with something? So I really was coming up short on that one. Thank God my teammate, Allie Downey had to answer it, not me. So Neha, one of the, one of the things that you just mentioned is that you all bootstrapped content stack for a long time. And I'm interested in your perspective because that's not necessarily common in Silicon Valley. There's, there's a really common approach, which is raising venture capital right out of the gate, you know, and trying to grow as fast as you can right from the very beginning, essentially using other people's money as the fuel for that growth. And, and you all took a different approach here. And I'd love for you to talk to us about that, why you decided to opt for that path rather than what tends to be a more dominant path coming out of the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you that it was intentional and deliberate because <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't exactly that it um, it was more opportunistic, I think. And we uh, originally, because we started as a services company, we built a profitable company and, you know, you can do that faster with services than with product because product takes a lot of investment and we were able to invest in from the profits of the company in the R and D teams that built out the products that we eventually spun out. And so we had a head start and with very little go-to-market investment, we had mm-hmm. customers for our products and we had kind of had a brand for each of them. And we had a little bit of marketing for each of them. 
really to, to take those to the next level and truly become category leaders, you have to invest a lot more in the go-to-market. And that's when fundraising became important. So we didn't fundraise until we did the spin outs and for built IO, we actually never raised a dime. We sold that company to Software AG in late 2018. And I raised for content stack, the series a in 2019. And hmm. because we had bootstrapped for so long and built so much value, we were able to raise at that time, one of the largest series A's for an enterprise SaaS company, which was 31 and a half million dollars. And, um, and then fast forward to now earlier this year, we raised another 57 and a half. So we've raised now $89 million for content stack, which is all being put to work to essentially the it's all go to market. It's sales marketing, getting the brand out, driving demand in the industry, making an impact in, in the, in the, you know, really trying to put the incumbents in the industry at a little bit of a challenge. (laughs) So Mm. that's what we're doing. It bootstrapping um, is not for the faint of heart. I, I, I can't even count how many times I was nervous about making payroll, how many mm-hmm. times my husband and I went off of payroll and put our personal money into the business so that we could make sure that every employee was paid on time and what was promised to them. And probably one of the biggest benefits of raising capital is that you can take some of that uncertainty off the table and have like a, you know, just a plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's mental and emotional energy that goes, that goes toward fear, you know, and anxiety during, during those moments. And instead you can funnel all of your mental and emotional energy toward building and winning. Neha, $89 million, like that puts the, the $1,100 from your 12 year old days. <laughs> In context, holy cow, that's amazing. What does your family think? What do your parents think? This is like a, like a magnitude of success that's just so extraordinary. How have they responded? It's, it's so funny. My, so my dad, unfortunately, hasn't been here to see a lot of this. He, he passed away five years ago. But my mom, she doesn't really know what I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but she she will get messages from her friends that will say things like, Oh, did you see what Neha did? Oh, I just saw Neha in this article. And I like never send her stuff because I don't like, it's just weird I, I, to brag about things. So I don't, but she hears about it from other people and she'll like send me a message. Like, I'm so proud of you, but I don't know what this means. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, I think my family's um, obviously really proud of what we've accomplished so far, but they continuously expect more. And I, um, I actually remember one of the last conversations I had with my dad, and this was a little over five years ago. And I had gone back to my school district where I went to high school in Pomona, California. And they invited me as a keynote to talk to the students as they were graduating. And I'm giving them a, a you know, just to talk about my journey and, and explaining, you know, what someone, what a kid out of Pomona could, could accomplish. And my dad, at the end of it, you know, all the teachers are walking up to him and hugging him and telling him how brilliant I am and all of that. And we went home and, and I asked him for feedback and he's like, you say, I'm too much. <laughs> so he did. And so since then, like I've tried to stop saying I'm when I speak and I, I think it really actually helped that he gave me that feedback. Yeah. So I think he was proud. <laughs> it, um, I just said, um, it's amazing those little moments where people we love are direct with us because they care about us and they want us to succeed. And in some ways, avoiding constructive criticism feels more familiar and, and safer. And instead, out of their love for us, they just, or, or whatever it is, affection, admiration, to go straight there and to, and in doing so, imply you can be even more you know, you can be even better. It's just such a gift to give to another person. A hundred percent. And this is actually a good lesson, even with colleagues and friends, there's a difference between being nice and being kind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're being nice, you're just kind of getting past something like you did great. You were awesome, which is also true, but by being kind, you're helping them to be better. And Mm -hmm. that's also like a lesson in feedback in an organization or as a manager, you know, do you, do you just say nice things because it's easier and it avoids conflict 
or can you be kind and give feedback that makes them better? And mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing to remember. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about you, you described yourself as a kid from Pomona, you know, to see what a kid from Pomona can do, Pomona can do. Um, do you think about your identity today, this incredibly successful serial entrepreneur and CEO? Do you also hang on to that, those identities of your, your previous selves, you know, yourself as a 12 year old, yourself as a 22 year old, yourself as an MBA student, yourself feeling other at VMware, or have you shed those identities over time and just grown into an entirely new person over time or grown entirely into your potential, but without really hanging on to those past selves? No, I think they're all a part of me. Uh -huh. They have to be. And yeah, I mean, it, it, like I'm such a nostalgic person. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, love, I love looking at old pictures and thinking about how, how great things were, even when we had nothing. And mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, no, I, it, it's all, it all adds up. It's all, you are some of all the parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was asking the question because one of the things that I really admire about you is your modesty. You were on the cover of Vogue India and you never told your mom. Your mom found out about it through her friends. Um, I was wondering if part of that modesty was informed by some of those, you know, tougher moments that you had that you encountered and you had to move past and move through. And I think it's a really beautiful part of who you are that would it have been there if everything had been smooth sailing from the very beginning? I don't know, but it's really wonderful that it's part of who you are today. Well, I think, I think humility is super important and knowing that you can lose it all is always mm -hmm. a good thing to remember. I, where I do feel like it's important to tout all of, especially for women is we have to tell the stories. Like I, I do want people to know that it was hard, but we raised $89 million and I was mm -hmm. the CEO of the company when we did it. And it's important because if you don't have that relatability mm -hmm. as a, as a woman that's earlier in their entrepreneurial journey, you don't know that that's a thing. And mm -hmm. I was lacking a lot of relatability. Right. And so I, I think it's important for us to tell those stories where, it, when it's going to lift other people up or extend the ladder down, but it's hard mm -hmm. to do that without seeming like you're bragging. So it, there's a balance that has to happen somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you've struck the perfect balance. You spoke at Denver University, your alma mater, and, and you presented some key leadership lessons that you didn't learn in school. And I'd love to dig into a couple of those with you. Sure. Um, the, first, the first one is provide your team with the opportunity to do the best work of their careers. If you aren't doing that, then you're failing them. So this is, I think, something that any manager should know and think about, but your job as a manager or a leader is to develop the people that you bring on board and that have trusted them, themselves, their time, a part of their career with you. And so your job is to unblock and to rally for them and help them to do their best work. And it, it's really, it's, it's just empowerment, right? If you feel empowered, then you feel like you're, that you feel like a sense of significance in the work that you bring to the table and you do your best work and the company wins and you win. And why wouldn't everybody just want that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and maybe this one is related. You say become rejection proof, which is very hard as an entrepreneur. Yes. And um, funny enough, I was talking to Carol about this last night. <laughs> you, you really do build a thick skin um, in entrepreneurship. And I don't think you can survive unless you do. And it becomes less about being liked and more about uh, moving the ball forward. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people may not even see that you're doing something to help them. And you have to be okay with that too. It's all, it's all part of the, the, uh, the job and the journey. Mm -hmm. And resilience comes with, you can get beat up left and right day in, day out, but get back up. And I like to think about not being able to fall off the floor because, because it's in, in the end, it's, it's this idea of, well, you've been there before, get back up and keep going. And a lot of it is also just about 
like after you've been rejected enough times, it doesn't feel like rejection anymore. It just Mm -hmm. feels like, you know, a mini obstacle that you need to walk around and it becomes easier. And so there's actually a Ted talk um, called what I learned. I think it's from a hundred days of rejection. It's Jia Jiang. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you watch it. It was so inspiring to me, but he basically set an an experiment to help himself get over rejection and decided he was going to do 100 things that he knew he would get rejected to do Mm. and just went out there and did them. And he actually ended up, I think, getting like 50 yeses, which was (laughs) completely unexpected. Um, that's it's a 50% really, hit rate. That's not too bad. It's really good. You, you guys should see it. But I, you know, I think that's, I think that's what it comes down to is, is um, just building the resilience and the best entrepreneurs will always have it because you just have to keep going. And days, there's days when you just want to check it all in, mm-hmm. you give yourself a little bit of time and then get back on your feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. I don't fear no at all. I don't even hear no anymore. I just hear like, not quite yet. <laughs> or could you tell me more? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or did register. I say, or maybe you need to say it differently because yeah. they obviously didn't hear you. <laughs> exactly. I'll speak a little louder. <laughs> um, the third one that I, that we picked up on that you said is leadership is a constant learning process. No two days are the same. This to me is, this kind of goes back to entrepreneurship, but it's also just anytime you're challenging yourself, you're learning, right? Mm -hmm. And anytime you're putting yourself kind of outside of your comfort zone, you're learning. And if you don't, if you, if you're never failing, that means you're not pushing yourself hard enough because Mm -hmm. you have to fail to learn. And so that's really, to me, what that's about. And it's also about having the humility to know that you don't know how to do everything and that you can ask for help. And that's Mm -hmm. part of it. And like, for me, that's come in the form of hiring people that are super smart in areas where I'm not. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of areas because I don't know how to do everything. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, just knowing that and knowing that you're constantly learning and that it's actually the fun part to me, because Mm -hmm. I don't like, you know, I I don't want to be bored and Mm -hmm. learning constantly being challenged constantly is a way to make a hard work, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have two more, and then I'm going to turn the conversation over to the audience, but I love this one, which is expect to win. I love this combination that, that you, that you're giving us of modesty and moxie expect to win. What's that about? So I I can't work this hard and expect to not win. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's every, I'm putting everything into this. And in the end, you know, and it's not just for me, it's for everyone who's, who's believed and Mm -hmm. who's been loyal. I've had, I have employees that have been with me now for 11 and a half years. Mm -hmm. I I have to keep taking them over the finish line, whatever that finish line looks like. And Mm -hmm. that's my job. And I have to expect that I can get them there. The moment at which I feel like I can't, I'm doing everyone involved a disservice, including all my shareholders, all my employees, all my customers, all my partners and myself. And so it's, to me, it's part of the mantra. You have to expect that you can win and that you can lead there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, life is short, never be boring. <laughs> yeah, so I don't like being bored and I'm a pretty spontaneous person and I like to try a lot of different things. Probably my favorite example, some of you know this, I have a, I have a love for wine and you can hang out and drink wine and enjoy it with your friends, or I could become certified in knowing wine. So I became a certified sommelier because it was fun and, um, and it was a challenging experience. And, and then what's happened since then is it's actually become a really important business tool because in a world where if you aren't a 40 year old white dude (laughs) that plays golf, you sometimes don't get invited to things, but being someone that knows how to read the wine list better than anyone else around, I get invited to a lot of things. And that actually helped me break through some doors that I probably wouldn't have been able to break in Silicon Valley for a really long time. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Never be boring is like work hard, but don't forget to play hard and have some fun along the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's there's some pragmatism in that lesson in that you've 
you have held on to your authentic self and also stretch yourself in ways to to translate and become closer to other people you talked about it at vmware not having the vernacular you know not not having the the cliff notes of how to show up there um so i love the i love the growth mindset and and the idea that if there is a gap you will fill it and you can fill it i think that's important and it's also knowing that going back to expect to win i mean it, it is a game you're we're all playing a game, maybe we're at different parts of the game or our games are different, but in the end, like there are players and there's ways to understand how to navigate. And sometimes the superpower shows up in special interests. Sometimes it shows up in having empathy and understanding people. Like there's just different ways to play the game and you don't Mm -hmm. have to not be your authentic self to lean into that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay, Shika has a question. She says, Neha, thank you for hosting this session. I'm loving your awesomeness. You spoke about what potential hires ask about in interviews, but in the reverse, what do you look for as you build out your team? It's grit and passion. One of the things we say at Content Stack is quit your job, discover your calling. And it's really about, you know, do you really want to be a part of and we use this language and some people may not love it, but it's tribe. Do you want to be a part of a tribe that's going to change the way that people build things? And you can sense it a lot of the time. I mean, there's a skill set that comes with every role, but then there's also a, like a passion, a drive and energy wanting to challenge the status quo to be better, to do more and to do it in a way that's collaborative and not in a, in a silo. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you assess it? How do you suss it out? It's, it's so hard. It's, and mm-hmm. I don't even actually think I'm the best interviewer. I luckily have a lot of people that are great at it. They bring me in for the hard sell at the end, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but there's, there's an art to asking the right questions and looking for the right examples to understand how people work with each other. And also just sharing like I, I think a lot of it is having authentic stories about your life. And I know a lot of people in, in the break line program kind of come from different walks of life and that are transitioning to potentially roles in tech careers. I think telling stories from that first part of your life and relating it back is so powerful that it, for, you know, for this crowd, I would say, do that, tell, tell stories, explain how something you did in the past can relate back to something that you can bring to the workplace. Mm-hmm. Casey has a question. She says, what is the most impactful no you ever bounced back from? I think probably one of the most impactful ones comes back to fundraising. And mm. it was when I first spun content stack out of raw engineering, I thought I was ready to raise a series A right away. And I started those conversations. I was planning to raise five to $7 million. That was normal at the time. And because we had spun out of a services company, I got a lot of feedback from, from mostly from investors that I should first prove that I knew how to run a product company before Mm -hmm. I can go and raise a bunch of money. And so I did, I proved that I could. And then fast forward a year and we raised a lot more 5X, mm-hmm. what we intended to raise on a much higher valuation because I stuck it out. And that was a hard no to hear, but in the end, it had the most positive impact because mm-hmm. I did have to, I had to wait it out. And in the end, we all got a better result for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, um, you had said, you've said before that fundraising is like dating. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, um, I think the most important thing when you're looking for a relationship and, you know, fundraising, especially when you get further along, you're giving up a seat on your board, which is basically inviting someone who's a voting member to your family, who's going to have an impact on, on you and your employees who you care a lot about. And so finding someone who you share values with is super important, just like Mm -hmm. it would be in, in building a relationship. And so there's that. There's also, you get a few meetings with someone and then you have to make a decision if you're going to bring them into your life. And, 
and you're with that person sometimes longer than you are with some of your closest friends, right? And so it is like it is it is important to know that you're not only getting the right skill set or the right kind of drive, but also someone who shares values with you. If you're in a really tough mm. situation, like we went through a pandemic and we just hired a bunch of people. Do you want the person at the table to say, fire all those people? Or do you want them to say, let's train those people so that when we come out of this, they're going to be in a good place that's going to help take the company forward. Mm -hmm. And both sides of that equation exist in the investment community. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I landed with investors that share my values and that wanted to grow my team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. Neha, your content stack is a family business in more ways than one. You, your husband is your co-founder, but your brother also works at the company. Is that right? He actually works in raw engineering. Raw pre- engineering. Okay. Company. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so. One of the things that I was reflecting on, and Brandon has a question here, is you know, that, that kind of blend of work is life and and life is work, especially when, you know, when your family is involved on both sides of the equation. And, and yet you carved out time to become a sommelier. And Brandon is saying, why was, how did you do it? And why was that so important to you? Um, so this, this sommelier thing would be really hard to do today in my life. Um, I did it back in 2010. And I had the luxury of having a little more time then. Um, it, I, I, it's, it's hard. I'll, I'll be honest, like work-life balance when you're running a company, it doesn't really exist. I live with constant guilt that I'm letting people down, friends, family, I miss events, I miss things. <laughs> that part's not fun, but you do, you do your best and you, you give it your all. I mean, I, yeah. Balance is tough in this role. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your close friend, your dear friend, Carol Patel is here. And Carol, I'm just interested in, in your perspective, especially because Neha is so, has so much humility. You all met in business school and it's been over a decade since then. What are your reflections like looking at her now and the journey and the trajectory? You must be so proud of her. You know, I was just listening to this event and I do still see a lot of the same 22-year-old Neha that I met back in 2001. And I was just reflecting back. We were classmates, um, of course, friends, but Neha got me my first job at Sun. Her husband Mm -hmm. got me a, a job at his integration company. We've actually had an engagement where we were partners, like almost a vendor customer relationship building mobile apps for sports teams. And, you know, even fast forwarding to last night when we were sitting together over a glass of wine, talking a lot about like, what does our future hold and what legacy do we want to leave behind? Mm -hmm. I take a lot of my inspiration from Neha. She does, she, she's a groundbreaker, you know, she sets trends and I don't see myself as an innovator. I was telling her this last night. I see myself as an imitator. And so this pairing of our friendship over 20 plus years, I look to her innovation so that I can take the best ideas and make them applicable to my surroundings um, or add different unique perspective to the things that she's already trailblazed and thought of. And it's, it's really done amazing things for me in my personal life, my work life, and my friendship life with her. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Carol, for adding that lens to the conversation. Thank you for connecting us with Neha. Neha, thank you so much for your time today. What a pleasure to spend the last hour with you, hearing a little bit more about your journey hearing more about content stack. We're just wishing you and your whole team the very best as you continue building this phenomenal company together. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all for listening to a little bit of my story. And I wish you all the best. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, 
We only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe. And if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. It helps us continue to share this great content. And most importantly, we just love to hear what you what you'd have to say about some of the content that we're putting out there. So please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>